Please turn in your copy of scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's great to be back here with you again. And we're going to continue on in our message series. And um, this morning, if you're taking notes, the title of the message is How We Can Become a Church That Glorifies God in a Culture of Idolatry. We're going to talk about how we can be a church that gives glory to God, that glorifies God in a culture of idolatry. So I want to start out just by talking about the word glory this morning. For a lot of us, when we hear the word glory, what we think about is somewhat in the sports realm, right? We think about somebody winning a championship. Uh, we think about the glory that comes from that. I can remember a brief moment of glory that I had when I was in probably seventh or eighth grade. I was on a little league baseball team and our team was down by two runs. It was in the last inning. There was two guys on base. As I remember, there were two outs and I come up to bat. So all of my team's hopes are in this person right here, which is bad. So there I am, and I'm up to bat, and it was, and it was, uh, and it was, the game was on the line. I can remember, I can picture it right now, right on the side here. Every, all my teammates were up against the chain link fence, and they're all chanting. They're going, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. You remember like 15, 20 years ago, that was a really popular chant in America because of a certain other, you know, talk show host. Remember that Jerry Springer show, anybody, right? So that was pretty common. But anyway, so they're going crazy and I'm like, oh boy, I got to do something here. And so that ball comes and sure enough, bam, it's going and it's gone, baby. Over the fence. So I can remember going around all the bases and just that feeling, that exuberance. And I remember rounding third and all my team's right there. And I jump and I slam on home plate and everybody's just jumping up and down with me. And uh, it just so happened to be Father's Day weekend. Okay, so that was awesome. My dad was there. I had both sets of grandparents in town, one from Indiana, one from Iowa. So all the grandparents are there. And I can remember we got in the car and my mom's like, Jerry, we're so proud of you. You know, and she actually made the call to a Carvel ice cream place and they had a cake made. So I get home, I walk in and there's a cake sitting on the table that says, Jerry, three run, home run. On the cake. It's like, all right, I'm 13, I'm not six, you know. But imagine when they get that call, you know, at the ice cream place. Uh, okay, whatever you say. But I remember that idea of glory, like this is incredible, this is awesome, I love it. Like this feeling of success and radiance and, and, and just having an impact on other people. We see that in the sports realm. Uh, I want to go over with you the three basic meanings of glory that you see in Scripture. It's actually quite complicated. There's over 20 different Hebrew and Greek words that are translated glory in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 20 different words. But they can basically bro be broken down into three general meanings. And the first one is the idea of something being weighty or something being heavy. Glory. Now that's not one that entered into my line of thinking um, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Can you imagine next time you go to the doctor and they're like, okay, well, it looks like you could probably stand to lose a few pounds. And you're like, shed some of this glory? <laughs> I don't think so. 
That's one of the meanings in the, in the, in the Hebrew. And of course, that means uh, in the realm of like military powers or empires, the glory of the Roman Empire. That, that was the idea. There was a weightiness behind it that couldn't be ignored. Second main meaning that we see is the idea of beauty, radiance, physical beauty. And we see that a lot uh, for many of us if you've been to a wedding, especially being on a pastor, you do a lot of weddings, and so you're privy to the best seats in the house right up here next to the bride and the, and the groom, and you can see that bride coming down in and, and all of her glory and that radiance. And even we see that in, in, in limited capacity, we see glimpses of that. If you've got a daughter, as your daughter's growing up, you see how they want to be radiant and they want to be beautiful. My wife and I have this little tradition that we started many years back on Valentine's Day. We have a dinner that we cook, that we create. We get all dressed up and we put the aprons on and we're the servers and we tell all of our kids, our three kids, to go upstairs and to get their best thing on and stay in the room. We're gonna go up and escort them down like a big fancy thing in our house. It's been a lot of fun. So my 10-year-old son, Caden, he's like, okay, dad, he's got a tie on, he's good to go, right? I get up there and there's no glory there. <laughs> you know, he takes my arm and we go down, all right. Well, with my two daughters, it's a different story, right? That door is shut. That door is locked. There's no entering in before they are ready, and they are not ready on time. Apparently, glory takes time, right? Some of you guys are like, yeah, amen to that, brother. That's why I walked in five minutes late. Um, glory takes time, even now, with my wife. But anyway, so I go and knock on the door. Don't come in yet, you know, and finally the big unveiling, they open the door, and one at a time they come out, oh, you look so beautiful, you look so amazing. And you could see it like just internally shining in their demeanor, like they love glory. And that's one picture of it. And we see in scripture, like in the New Testament, where Jesus says that he wants to, you know, have his bride, the church, and he wants that to be displayed and presented as a spotless, glorious, beautiful bride. Us. Glory. And the third one, has to do with maybe a little bit more of what we think of when we think about the word glory. The third category is the idea of a brilliant, burning light. Almost like an inferno. And we get that beautiful picture in the book of Exodus chapter 33. You remember when Moses was arguing with God, essentially, and God's like, you're gonna lead my people. He said, I don't wanna lead your people. God said, well, you need to lead my people. And Moses says, all right, maybe I'll lead your people, but God... Do this for me. Show me your glory. And so God said, you can't handle my glory. It's, it's not gonna work. Okay, but if you really want, I'll pick you up and I'll hide you over here in the cleft of this rock and I will come by in all of my glory, in my inferno of beautiful, radiant light. You can't even look or you will die but I will give you just a picture, just a glimpse of what that glory is. And Moses was never the same. So when we talk about being a church that understands what this glory of God is and how do we, how do we understand that glory, how do, we, how do we act in such a way that we give glory back to God in a culture that is so full of idolatry what we're going to be diving into here from chapter 10. Basically broken up into two different main points. The first one is a misdirected glory, and the second one is a reflected glory. 
Let's talk about the first one, a misdirected glory. We understand that there is this beauty, there is this power, but so often for many of us, it's misdirected, it's misused. I got a couple of props up here this morning to kind of help us see what this, uh, what this really looks like. This is a picture frame. Picture frames are used to hang something on the wall in a prominent position in your house because you want people to see it. You want them to recognize that this is something I want displayed. I want this in a place where everyone can see it. And I dare say for some of us, this idea is that we want a certain aspect of ourselves to be almost up on display for others to see, for others to look at, for others to appreciate. We want, in other words, the glory for ourselves. And I find this true in my own life as human nature, is we always want to kind of be portraying ourselves in a certain light. Remember a couple of years ago, we had some guests over and I was bringing them through our house that we had in Michigan. And uh, the, the, my favorite room in the whole house was a screened in porch that we had. And, um, and I would bring our guests in there. And this particular time I said, this is my favorite room in the whole place. Early in the morning, I come out here and I do my quiet time. It's just me and God. And then I love coming out here late at night after the kids go to sleep and just study scripture and hear from God out here. And I can remember that moment, it's almost as if God just kind of whispered, like, I really hope you enjoyed telling them that. Portraying yourself in that way. Reminded of Matthew chapter 6, right? Where Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray out loud and do this big external display of how holy they are, or they love to you know, be clanging bells when they give money because they want everybody to know, Jesus says, surely they've already received their reward in full. I hope you enjoyed saying that. But for many of us, that's kind of the way we live. We want that glory for ourselves. We want to hoard that glory for ourselves. The next one that we see is not just glorifying ourselves, but what we see here in the text is the idea of glorifying an idol, idolatry. Let's go ahead and start reading chapter 10, start reading in verse 1. Paul says this, he says, For I want you to know, my brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Notice those two things that are repeated there. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters of some as some of them were. And we'll just stop right there. So basically Paul's saying, all right, you want to know how to be a church that's glorifying? Well, let's go back into the history of my people. 
Remember we talked about last week, there's a lot of these um, people that were in the church of Corinth that had Jewish roots. They were, they were part of the nation of Israel that now were Jesus followers, seeing him as the Messiah now. So they know all about the stories of the Old Testament, how God had intervened. And Paul's saying here, let me give you a little history lesson about our people and our tendency to be drawn away from God and glorifying him and rather glorifying idols. Notice he says here in these first couple of verses, he says, all of us were under the cloud. All of us passed through the sea. He's basically reminding them of their identification. Because you remember the story in the Exodus, the nation of Israel was there and there was a giant cloud that would lead them and guide them by day. And Paul's reminding them that you are a people who are led by God. There's direction. We didn't leave you directionless. There was a very real and present manifestation of God that was leading you. So you are a people that are led and then secondly, he talks about how they're all under the sea or they pass through the sea. And the idea there is protection. Paul's saying, don't you know from our history that we've got a God that protects us and fights for us? How short is our memory when we think about all the incredible things that God has done, bringing us through the, the Red Sea and at the very last moment, crashing down on all the enemies of God that were out to kill us. Remember that? But the problem with idolatry is that we, the people of God, have a very short memory. I want you to notice in there where it says they all drank from the same spiritual drink. They were led by that rock, and that rock was Christ. This could be a whole other message for a whole other time about Old Testament types that we have see of Jesus. But this is, this is a newsflash for them. What do you mean that rock was Christ? We didn't even know who Jesus was. But the point is, even in the midst of the temptation and the idolatry and everything else that they enter into, Jesus is present. He was there with them and fully aware of how people's allegiances turned and they were giving glory and pouring out affection and chasing after all these other lesser gods. He continues to go through that chapter. We're not going to take time to read the whole thing. But essentially he highlights four different illustrations of where people entered into idolatry. The first one was that people were grumbling right after they went through the Red Sea and they were bringing idols with them. They wanted to go back to Egypt. The second one was that um, Moses was there up on Mount Sinai and you remember the situation with the golden calf where the people said, we want something that we can worship. We want to be like all these other cultures that have a physical uh, you know, idol that they can worship and we want that. The third one going through there's uh, accounts where Israel worshiped Baal and, and in, including immoral acts that they participated in, tens of thousands of them. And the fourth one that's listed out there is how the people, when they received the manna, this miraculous food that God provided for them on a daily basis, they got tired of it. And they began to grumble and they began to complain. And so God sent snakes into the camp. All right, anybody here afraid of snakes? Oh yeah, well next time your kids complain about the food that you're giving them, just remind them of this little tale. 
God sent snakes, serpents into the camp that bit them, and many of them died, but he provided a way out. That beautiful passage where there was a bronze serpent held up, and he said, look and live, believe, repent, and live. But he recounts quickly all four of those situations that said these are where our people who love God and who have been ministered to by God forgot how great it was to live in his glory and instead turned to idolatry. So what does that mean for us today? Are we involved in idolatry today? Absolutely. Let me ask you this question. What is taking the place of God as the chief recipient of your affections? Scripture calls that an idol. An idol is anything that you love more than God or anything that you rest your heart in more than God. Anything that brings you more security than God. Anything that brings you more direction than God. Remember those first two illustrations? All of us were under the cloud. All of us went through the sea. Security, direction. That's an idol. If you're looking to a created thing, for something that only the creator could give, that's an idol. St. Augustine, who was a very early church father and writer, put it this way in his book, The Confessions. He says, the essence of sin is a disordered love. That's all sin is, a disordered love. In other words, every single one of us has a bunch of things in our life that we love. We love our family, we love our spouses, we love our friendships, we love our hobbies, we appreciate being successful in a job, we love finances, we love comfort. There's a whole bunch of things and the problem is that if they somehow get disordered, so number four becomes number one and number five becomes number two of where it should be, that is the essence of sin. So the number one thing should be, what do we love? What do we live for? God. And if there's been something in your life that has gone up here and displaced, it's idolatry. We see that in our lives and we're frustrated by that when we really take a good hard look at it. But a couple things I want to point out to you. The first one, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. Remember, this is all in the context of this idea of idolatry. And we know it's difficult, and we see the history, and we know ourselves. But look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You've probably heard this verse if you've been around the church scene for a while. But again, this is in the context of idolatry. Here's what it says. So no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. In other words, the word of hope this morning is that whatever it is that you are worshiping that has taken the place of God, the promise is right here. It doesn't have to be that way. You can do it by the strength of God. You can overcome and get those loves in the proper order by the strength of God. Why is this such an issue? Skip down to verse 22. The Apostle Paul says this. In all of this context of idolatry, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 
We see over and over in the Old Testament that our God is a jealous God. Not in a petty human emotion like, like we sometimes have, but in the realm that says, I've done so much for you and I'm here and I'm available and I've proven myself to you and yet God says, I am hurt when you run off to all of these lesser gods and these lesser loves and I know you because I created you and I know that the only way you're gonna be filled is if you're wholly devoted to me and I'm strengthening you and we've got this relationship. But God's saying, it hurts me to see you ignore that and run off to all of these lesser lovers. When God is there with his arms wide open, he's a jealous God. Such is the sin of idolatry. And that's what happens when we misdirect glory. When we pour it out on something that doesn't deserve it. Or when we try to display ourselves in such a way that we're going to get it. Well, I want to bring to you a different concept this morning. One that I'm really hoping that our church can be an absolute example of. It's not misdirected glory, but the second point, what we want to be is we want to be a people who live in a reflected glory. A reflected glory. So I've got up here another prop. This is a mirror. Hopefully, uh, just about every one of you looked inside of this this morning. One of these. Looking out, it looks like most of you took that time. A couple of you have got a question about. But anyway, we know what this is, right? And for many of us, when you look in the mirror and you see who you really are, it can be disappointing. It's not what you display to everybody else, but it's okay. This is reality. Mirrors don't lie. We've heard that before, right? So sometimes when you're looking into your own eyes and you see who you really are, not just the charade that you play, it can be pretty disappointing. But I want to bring to you this morning that this can be an illustration of the kind of church that we want to be. Instead of being a church that's constantly staring at ourselves, looking at ourselves, reflecting back ourselves, instead of a church really in essence that is, you know, kind of mimicking the world and like instead of being the kind of people that just show people what they want to see and reflecting back the world to them, I propose that we be a church that holds up our mirror like this at a 45-degree angle. Because what happens when you're staring at this? What do you see? Are you seeing me? Like, no, I'm seeing lights. You're blinding me right now. I'm seeing the ceiling Yes, exactly. You're not seeing me, but any attention, any accolades that is coming this way, I'm deflecting it straight up to heaven, to God. Skip down as we end this particular chapter. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 31 of chapter 10. Context of idolatry, all these other concepts, all this other thing. He says, so, Paul says, I'm going to land the plane now. So, he says, whether you eat or drink, remember, that's been the context of the last several chapters. We talked about that the last couple of weeks with gray areas and liberties and responsibilities. He says, so whatever you eat, whatever you drink, notice this next one that he says, or whatever you do. 
Not just in those two things, but in every single area of your life, Paul says. Do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. And I think a lot of times when we think about people giving God the glory, a lot of times we picture that in a real positive way, right? The guy who wins the MVP, uh, you know, of the World Series or, you know, some celebrity who gets an award or anytime there's, uh, you know, those kinds of accolades, maybe even for you at your Thanksgiving table while you're looking around the table and you're seeing your family and you're thinking about the year and you're like, you know what, we've had a great year. Let's just give God the glory for this. Somebody gets an award, you know, I just want to give all the glory to the Lord. And we kind of think about that in a positive way, right? But there's a whole nother piece to it. What if I told you that as a church and as individuals, sometimes the way we can reflect God's glory the greatest is during those times that are most difficult, most dark, and the most trials and tribulations. That's when God's glory can shine out the greatest. I can remember when this came clear to me a couple, last year, just a year ago, I was, I was in the great nation of Haiti as I've been there several times and I was leading a student ministry trip of about 25 students and we would travel around every day on these, on these old school buses and we would go to these different villages and, and play with the kids and minister and share the gospel and it was incredible. And on each bus there was five or six translators there from the organization we were with. These were Haitian kids. They were teenagers basically. 12, 14, 16 years old. They were young. Some of them even younger than the students that we brought. But these translators had such a heart, such a joy in, in, in their being for their country and they loved God and they were just a blast to be around. And I remember the second day that we were there, we're driving around and, and one of the translators says, Jerry, let's sing. Okay, you wanna sing? Let's sing, okay. What song do you like? Our God is greater. And honestly, in my heart, I'm like, our God is greater. Come on, that song has been so overdone. You know, you got to remember the world that I'm coming from, student ministry. You know, it's church on Sunday morning, which we had done that song, you know, for a couple years. It's student ministry on Sunday night, which we do that song. And you got camps and you got retreats and like certain songs, you just overdo them. I'm like, wow, okay. And you know, all right, you guys want to sing that one? Let's, let's go ahead and sing that one. So we just started singing a cappella in this, in this bus. And when it got to the chorus part, they just started to get so excited. You know, they're like, our God is great. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. They start standing up while we're driving. And I'm like, wow, these guys really like our God is greater. Okay, well, let's engage. Let's do it. So we're standing up and we're singing. And then when they got to the chorus, they're like, and if our God is with us, then don't stand against us. And if our God is for us, then what can stand against? And all of them take their hands on the top of the bus and like, bum, 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 bum. And they are absolutely loving it. And it was that moment of clarity that I looked around. I'm like, I know what's happening here. This song actually means something to them. Because we're driving up and down these dusty, bumpy roads and we're looking out at these tent cities set up by Samaritan's Purse, 
four or five years ago now since the massive earthquake, and there's still hundreds of them. And people are just living in these tents, and you realize the devastation that has come in that country, and yet these people that have seen God move, even in the midst of that tragedy, are saying, our God is greater, our God is stronger. And if God's for us, who can stand against? It doesn't matter. Through tragedy, the glory of God can be displayed and reflected. We see that even in the life of Jesus himself. In John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, literally minutes before he was about to be crucified, to be led off to his death, he prays, and I want you to listen for the word glory in this passage. Listen to what he says. John chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. My, my time is coming, Jesus is saying. It's here. So God, glorify me, and in, in, in entering into this, I want to glorify you. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you've given him, and this is eternal life that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus says, verse four, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Four different times that word's used in those five verses. And down in verse 22, we get another little piece of it where Jesus says, the glory that you have given to me, I have now given to them. That is his disciples. So you get this picture that there's some sort of glory that's coming down from heaven, some opportunity for weightiness and authority and beauty and radiance. That's coming down and it's ours. Jesus says, I gave that glory to the disciples now. So now it's their responsibility to do one of two things with it. They can hoard it for themselves. All of these gifts, all of these abilities, all of these experiences, all the expertise that we see right here in this, in this group of people. All the glory, potential glory that God has given us, we can either choose to hoard that for ourselves or like it says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, coming down from the Father of lights. And he doesn't desire us to just hoard that. Instead, he desires us to be the kind of people that hold the mirror just like this at a 45-degree angle. So any glory that's coming down, any ability, it is not for us, but it's immediately reflected and deflected out to the world. What's the second piece of it? That's one advantage of living a 45 degree mirrored life. Everything that comes from God, it's not for me, it's for you. But the other one is when people see that glory, when people understand that, when people are drawn to you and they look at you, they're not seeing anything except for him. Except for him. Except for God. So I don't know where that lands with you here this morning as we start talking about being a people and a church that glorify God. But all I know is for me, 
I don't even want a mirror that's just this big. Because I want God to be pouring down. If all this is not for me, but it's for them and it's for the world, I don't want just a couple of buckets worth of glory. I don't want little Dixie cups. I want him to pour down the glory like you're in one of those water parks with that big, massive 500-gallon bucket up there. You know what I'm talking about? That splashes over every couple of minutes. I want to be that kind of person. And I don't want a mirror like this. I want a mirror the size of that so I can hold that out and like, all right, God, pour it on. It's all for you. I want to show it to this world. I want the glory of God to be spilling out of this high school and down the streets into Raleigh and to Durham into my neighborhood and all over. We're carriers of that. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 5 in closing. It's a famous passage that we've even, got a, we've even got a song that goes along with it. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, So let your light shine. Light, brilliance, inferno, glory. So let your light shine so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Can we be that kind of people here this morning? Is something coming to your mind right now? Some, some lesser idol that you've been pouring out your time and your energy and your resources and has displaced the one who deserves all the glory and affection? Can we be the kind of people that humbly say, God, I've only got one life to live I want to use it for you. I just want to be an amplifier and turn that thing all the way up to 11 because 11 is higher than 10. And I want to just allow you to resonate in your name, to resonate as loudly as possible through my life. That's the kind of life I want to live. So I don't know where you land on that this morning. I don't know what you came in with. Maybe you've been one to portray a glory and take it for yourself. Maybe you've been one that's been sidetracked by idolatry. Let's confess it this morning. And let's say, God, this glory all belongs to you, so I just want to give it to you. And let's allow the Spirit of God to do that kind of work in our hearts. Let's pray together. And Jesus... We just thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Corinth. We thank you for the example of the Old Testament. And man, so many have just got it wrong. And God, we want this to be a turning point for us, even now, this morning. So Lord, help us to know how to glorify you more with this short life that we have. And Jesus, I just pray that as we respond now in worship that you would just fill this place with singing from a people that have whole hearts, full hearts together, singing out these songs of worship to you as we close. And God, just by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to know what to do. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray.